0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up.
2: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenbloom, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest you check out my other podcast. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make your gift. Today's theme, grow it. Get some seeds, put them in the earth, and grow something beautiful and delicious. Today's guest is Shani McCabe from Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Baker Creek publishes a huge catalog of amazing heirlooms. Check them out online at rareseeds.com. Shanny and I got on the phone the other day to talk about what you should grow, what you can grow, and all kinds of stuff from bugs to pests to delicious pink celery. So tune in. I hope you like it.
3: Hi, Harry.
2: Hey, good morning. How are you?
3: I'm well. How are you?
2: I'm good. Can you hear me okay?
3: I can hear you great. My name is Shannie McCabe, and I am a garden expert for Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company. What I do is uh, I help lend gardening expertise, experience, advice um, to people who uh, at home who are growing their own garden. Um, I have spent many years growing heirloom varieties, and I have a lot of experience in. How to grow those particular varieties. And so that's the kind of advice that I like to give. I grow these heirloom varieties, I cook with them, um, sometimes I make teas with them, uh, sometimes I do crafts with them. So I take all of my um, years of experience farming and gardening and growing heirlooms and I translate that into educational material that might be blogs, that might be articles. That could be interviews um, for for other publications, and I also make educational videos. And probably what I spend most of my time doing is writing the catalog for the seed company that I work for, Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds.
2: Aha. So um, you're the one that if I'm reading the Baker Creek's catalog with the descriptions, you're the one who's written that?
3: That's me. Yes. Awesome.
2: Very cool. I love the Baker Creek catalog, by the way.
3: Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah, it's um, a great combination of um, exciting, passionate descriptions and uh, really high quality photos that are well composed. That's what we kind of love to pour into the catalog is just a lot of gardening inspiration. And and so so
2: Baker Creek, for people who don't know, is a heirloom seed company. The website is rareseeds.com that's based in Missouri, but really has stuff kind of all over the place, right? So I actually think I first encountered Baker Creek because Baker Creek runs a retail store called the Seed Bank in Petaluma, California, where I spent my high school years. So I was familiar with that, and it used to be in an actual bank building that... I always thought was super cool. When I was in high school, the building it used to be in in Petaluma was an antique store, but it is an old bank building. And I know it's moved now to a different location, but it's still called the Seed Bank. So that's kind of neat.
3: Yes. Yeah. We have a couple retail locations, one in California, one in Missouri, and one in Connecticut as well. And then we have um, our catalog, which so many people, not just across the country, but across the globe, they order seeds from our catalog.
2: Right, of course. And then you are based in Florida.
3: Yes, I am. Yes, I'm originally from Rhode Island, and then I was farming with Baker Creek in the Missouri Ozarks, and now I am gardening and farming in Florida.
2: Awesome. And what brought you to Florida? Was it just the fact that the region allows for much more growing days?
3: It was love. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I so. to... I moved to Florida to be near my boyfriend, but also I moved to Florida because I knew that I'd be able to farm year round. Um, And the busiest time of year for my work with Baker Creek is in the summertime when it's really hot in Florida. So I can get away from my gardens in Florida in the summer and go to Missouri and be hands on deck there. So it, it allows me to garden and farm all um, winter, fall and spring. And then uh, in the summertime, I, I shut things down and I go up to Missouri and I work with Baker Creek in person. Mostly I'm just working remotely, but in the summertime I can dedicate in person.
2: Oh, that's so cool. That's, that's It sounds like you have it all, like it all works out in the calendar. That's great.
3: <laughs> Took a while to <laughs> figure it out and refine it, but it worked out great.
2: So let's talk a little bit about heirloom seeds and what that means in heirloom varietals. The you know regular listeners to Heritage Radio Network are likely aware to a certain extent, you know, the fact that like when you talk about eggplant, there are more than one variety of eggplant, right? In fact, there are hundreds of varieties of eggplant, something like that. Um, but let's talk about what makes something an heirloom. Like how do you guys define that at Baker Creek?
3: Yeah, sure. There are a few definitions of heirloom depending on who you ask. Um, I'll just give you the two main definitions that you'll almost always hear. Uh, everyone, no matter who, everyone agrees that an heirloom is an open-pollinated variety, and mm. that means that the genetics have been stabilized and that it is a naturally crossed variety, which means that a bee or the wind or just a person with a paintbrush in their hand can cross-pollinate, you know, say two tomatoes and make a special kind of cross, say a striped green tomato. And if you save those seeds year after year, they become stabilized and you can save the seeds from that tomato. When you plant it, you will get the same characteristics. So it is an An open-pollinated variety is one that is naturally cross-pollinated. The seeds are then able to be saved year after year, and they are genetically stable. This is opposed to a hybrid where... um, you if you plant this if you save the seeds of your hybrid tomato we'll say and you plant them the following season you're going to get a random mix of genetics because the genetics have not been stabilized so this was not a natural cross that was over time stabilized Mm. to have consistent genetic characteristics this is a recent hybridization which means the plant will be vigorous in its first year But only that first year will the genetics be uh, predetermined and uh, predictable. Uh Every year after that, they will be crossed and very randomly and often in inferior ways. So if you have a hybrid tomato seed that you buy in a seed packet on your seed rack in the box store, if you uh, plant that seed, grow the plant save the tomato back and try to plant those seeds you're going to get a random a very random cross and oftentimes it's not going to be anything tasty or interesting it's going to be something pretty pretty random because the genetics just aren't stabilized
2: got it i see and so, so we yeah keep going oh,
3: sorry. so we all agree that open that all heirlooms are open pollinated here's where we differentiate our um Here is where we diverge in our definitions. Some folks maintain that heirlooms have to have a cultural significance, a story, and have to be at least 50 years old. Hmm. And at Baker Creek, we do prefer that the heirlooms that we offer have a cultural significance and a history and a story. However, we do not require them to be at least 50 years old. There's a good reason for that is because there are lots of really incredible modern-day open-pollinated breeders who are doing really fantastic work to save and cross-pollinate open-pollinated heirloom varieties. Um, These can be beautiful tomatoes in wild colors that we've never seen before, Um, peas that are bright purple so that they're easier to pick off the plant, beautiful rainbow-colored varieties that are more densely nutritious things that are more adapted to our culinary liking in this uh, modern age so these are new modern day breeders who are still using old school uh, open pollinated techniques And some people would say that they're not true heirlooms because they're not 50 years old. But we would like to include and offer the seeds from those new breeders because we want to support their work because it's really important and it's really fantastic and we wouldn't want to leave them out.
2: Yeah, I mean, as we start to talk about this and and as I'm thinking about this and like looking at the Baker Creek, the rareseeds.com website, it's so like my mind is like running wild with thinking about all the reasons and the ways that you would make these changes, right? Like, as you talk about some of the heirlooms being 50 years old, I think about like flavor profiles, right, and the way that people cook culturally uh, and different kinds of ethnic, you know, uh, importance of specific vegetables and then I'm thinking about the color, right? People are breeding for color, they're breeding for flavor, they're breeding for hardiness to grow in different places, right? Like I imagine there are yeah. there are string beans, what we all what I call grew up calling string beans, or sometimes green beans, although I'm looking at some really beautiful purple ones here on the site. Uh, you know, that grow better, say, in Florida, where the humidity is different or the heat is different or the length of the day is different than they would grow, say, in Rhode Island, where I am.
3: Yeah, that is a <clears throat> that's a common characteristic with heirloom seeds is that hybrids are, t- they're typically very well, um, generally adapted to a really wide range. We've really whittled the number of varieties that we offer in our, at our seed stores in America to just a few hybrids. And those just generally grow well across the country, but with heirlooms, They're specifically bred to grow really, really well in specific locations with specific climates. So you're exactly right. You've got uh, um, peppers from, uh, you know, Michigan. I mean, that's fantastic that there's a pepper that's bred to do well in the Great Lakes region with such short summers. Um, Then we've got peppers that are bred to do really well in Florida and, and to set their blooms even when the temperatures get extremely hot. So Yes, we are, heirlooms are typically regionally adapted to specific climates. And so when you link up your growing needs to the right heirloom, it makes this match made in heaven. It makes this perfect match where you're growing something that really takes off and does really phenomenally well in your specific area.
2: So how do you suggest someone go about thinking about their garden, right? Like right now we're talking, it's the end of March. It's a good time for people to start thinking about what am I going to grow if I have space to grow stuff, I think, in most of the country, right? Here in the Northeast, I think last night in Rhode Island where I am is probably the last freeze we're going to have. At least it looks that way. Um, I hope Yeah. So how do people, you know, how should people start planning? Right. I mean, like looking at this and saying, oh, my God, I want to grow these beautiful sugar magnolia tendril peas that are purple. And then if they're not right for your area, like how do you go about choosing what you're going to grow?
3: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, pretty much everything we offer in the catalog can be grown in all the various states. So if you pick one that's really well suited to your region, that's just a bonus. But got it. You, you can pretty much pick from anything in the catalog, but what I like to do when I'm looking at, our catalog is huge. It's like over 350 pages if you get the whole seed catalog, and if you get the free rare seed catalog. Still, it's a really big catalog with a lot of varieties, like 1,200 varieties. So when you sit down with this catalog with 1,200 varieties, it can be challenging to know where to begin, but what I always like to think about um, are two factors. One, my growing area, and so what will, what is from an area that has about the same weather and two is what kind of food do i like to eat Mm. Um, am i going to want to eat a little uh tiny french i call them because i i butcher the pronunciation cornichons you know those little little tiny pickles or do you want like a big delicatessen pickle um depending on the type of pickles that you like to eat you're going to pick a different kind of cucumber um depending on the the different ways that you like to enjoy your tomatoes whether you like a big juicy Tomato sandwich, or you like tiny snackable cherry tomatoes, that's going to be how you decide which tomato you'd like. So, I always like to, to actually imagine the kind of things I like to eat and then choose from there. And secondly, I like to think about my weather and try to match up a little bit. I mean, it doesn't have to be perfect, and many of these heirlooms are, are actually well adapted to a, a wide range of weather. But yeah. you can really hone it in. So I'm in Florida, so I love to grow Caribbean crops here. Mm. And I also love to grow Southeast Asian crops here because things from Thailand do really well in Florida. And things from the Caribbean obviously do really well in Florida. These are places that have analogous or very similar matching weather to what I'm experiencing. So I love Thai crops. I love Latin American crops. I love Caribbean crops here in Florida.
2: I saw you and- were growing turmeric.
3: Yes, I grew a ton of turmeric.
2: That's super, that's super cool. Um, so one of the questions I have about that and about this idea of like bringing seeds to different places, um, you know, as someone who has started to become very interested in foraging uh, wild edibles, there's a lot of talk about eating the invasives, right? So oh, yeah. things like, uh, like mustards. Um, and, and plants that are not native to places like the Northeast that are edible and delicious, we talk about, you know, let's eat them, like Japanese knotweed, for instance. Um, you know, it's, it's like a scourge in some places, but it's edible. And the idea being that if you eat it and you dig it up, then you're helping to kind of keep down that, that population growth. Are you ever worried about planting something in a place and that it might become an invasive?
3: Um, we try to stay cognizant of that and not really offer things that have that potential, but Mm. every region is different. So we hope that people are, you know, exercise that, that caution. Um, yeah, it it can be tricky to just, when you try to offer things, I mean, something like mugwort can be non-invasive in one region and totally invasive in another, Uh or even hardy kiwi can be, hardy kiwi can be quite invasive in parts of Massachusetts, but then for the majority of the rest of the country, it's really not an invasive plant. So um, yeah, that can be really tricky. And that's, but yes, I agree. I really enjoy um, foraging and eating invasive weeds. I love to eat lamb's quarter. I mean, that's, that's just a weed that you'd often find on your farm, especially if you have tired um, nutrient depleted soils, Mm. lamb's quarter is going to show up quite a bit. And I love to make lamb's quarter pesto, Um, I follow, um, black forager on, she's, she's on TikTok, but I follow her. Oh, she's so
2: great. I'm trying to get her on this show. (laughs) I want to interview her so much. I hope
3: you can get in touch (laughs) with her and get that to happen because, um, I have not really seen such a, I I don't think I've seen someone at the intersection of like, uh, incredible knowledge base and then also humor and, uh, creative, uh, recipes. Like I've never seen, uh any of those recipes before. And I've been forging for a long time and, and they're, they're just not the usual standards that you see. They're like super unique. So, so
2: Alexis, I've, Nicole, if you're listening, get <laughs> yeah. in touch. I've messaged you on Instagram, but you have a lot of followers and probably lots of people message you. But if you're listening or anybody knows her, please, I would love to
1: interview.
3: Yeah. She would be a <laughs> blast. I know I'd be tuning in, um, and at the edge of my seat, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, um, so that that's kind of the answer to that is, uh...
2: so you grew up not far from where I live now, but you grew up in you grew up on an island. You grew up on Block Island. Um, tell me about what that was like. I mean, so you know, I think people have a sense of like islands as being super idyllic, um, and so I imagine there were some really great things about growing up there. But I also know that in the modern world, um, certainly in New England, I have some friends that uh, grew up on uh, Viyl Haven and North Haven uh, off the coast of Maine. I know that island life can sometimes be kind of tough.
3: Right. Um, Yeah, I grew up in a really unique situation. Um, I grew up on a three by seven mile island, block island for anyone that's not familiar, three by seven miles. There's no bridge. You take a ferry, a one hour ferry ride. It's often rough and bumpy in the winter. And it could be really isolating, especially if you um, aren't in a financial position to get off the island. Mm -hmm. Often, I was uh, one of the uh, working class families that that lived out on Block Island and we just operated a tourism based business. And then in the winter time we hunkered down and survived taking care of um, our horses. We have a horse farm on Mm -hmm. Block Island. We take people, we take tourists on guided trail rides. So um, we were doing a lot of hunkering down over the winter and just basically trying to survive out there. And one thing that is interesting is that it growing up on an Island in the middle of the Atlantic It was in its own strange way, a bit of a food desert because uh, there's one and a half grocery stores, one that's open all the time and the other one that kind of would sometimes close seasonally Hmm. and produce availability. I mean, there was produce available, but it was quite expensive. Um, and so we growing up, I personally, we ate a lot of canned vegetables and we just uh, produce was really, really expensive and fairly unattainable, um, during certain seasons for us. So I had a huge appreciation when I moved to the mainland, I just had this massive appreciation for fresh produce. And I got that I felt my eyes were wide open when I was exposed to the farming movement and local mm. foods movement and, the sheer variety uh, and vibrancy of produce available, I had absolutely never experienced anything like that. I was actually pretty sheltered growing up on that island. I didn't leave very much. So I uh, i really didn't know too much about the different um, varieties of vegetables that existed. So I felt like I was sat in front of an incredible, colorful smorgasbord when I <laughs> finally made it to the mainland <laughs> for college and started, you know eating different colored sweet potatoes and finding out that there was something called Asian greens and that there wasn't just one kind, there were like a million kinds. So (laughs) it was, um, it was a funky place to grow up. Very cool. Very close to nature. Um, being isolated like that makes, gives you a lot of gratitude for simple things. And I still, to this day don't take human interaction for granted because Mm -hmm. I grew up somewhere where I didn't actually have a lot of it. So, um, It was a special experience and I'm very grateful, but uh, I was very excited and eager to try um, just a variety of different things and get exposed to the wider world.
1: My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected. And I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com.
2: So how has uh, the pandemic changed the work that you guys do. I imagine that last spring and then this year has got to be just bananas for you guys at Baker Creek.
3: Yeah, it's been, um, the pandemic has definitely prompted a massive uptick in first time gardeners and also in people who are maybe transitioning from a lightweight gardener to a heavyweight gardener Mm. to a homesteader to a hardcore homesteader. (laughs) Right. Um, People are just like really thinking a lot about sustainability food security there has been unfortunately there has been some seed hoarding which is unfortunate Mm. but um we we've also seen a huge uptick in just in in just first-time gardeners which is so exciting um and people are just really having more time on their hands i think people are opening their eyes to the therapeutic and stress relieving um abilities of garden the stress relieving properties of, of working in a garden yeah um it has been scientifically shown to be relaxing and stress relieving to work in your garden. Um, people have a little more time on their hands and free time to be with their family. So I think people are shifting priorities, looking to their backyard and, or to their patio or just to their front porch with a couple of pots. And they're growing their own food and then taking the time to prepare it and eat it at home with the family. So that's that's really important to us and made us really happy. And it's been, yeah, um, translated in a, a massive surge in seed sales. And we have been a bit slowed down in our production because COVID affected everything from the top down. So mm-hmm. some of our seed supply also was a bit um, slowed down, but we've started to really catch up and we have mostly everything back in stock and we're ready to provide people with their garden seed.
2: Cool. yeah. I mean, I was going to ask about that because I know even, I mean, you know, I know meat farmers who had a real problem because there was so much interest in people buying stuff without going to the supermarket early in covid that they, they, you know they ran out because they you know you can't just like turn on the you know, turn on the meat hose and like get more steaks and get more pork chops. Um, so they had to get new animals and grow more animals. And so I was thinking about that in terms of seed supply. You know, obviously, if you guys were used to however many seeds you had been selling every year roughly for the last however many years, and then suddenly you've got this huge uptick in interest, you can't just like make more seeds suddenly.
3: <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, it, it was, um, and that's why I've been encouraging everyone to this is a great year. If you are listening and you're not just a first time gardener, but maybe you're a seasoned gardener, this is your year to start doing some seed saving projects. Mm. Um, Saving your own seeds is not actually very hard. Uh, There are varying levels of difficulty, depending on whether you're a beginner, intermediate or expert. Um, You could even get into your own cross pollination and having fun making your own crosses. But um, there are so many benefits to saving your own seed. You're really like, you're, you're really, over time building your own little personal heirloom that's hyper, hyper um, adapted to your microclimate. So it's it's your special little thing that is adapted to your region, your needs, your wants. So you like a big juicy tomato with a small seed cavity. You got it. Just keep saving from those, (laughs) your favorite ones that you find, select, select, select season after season. And before you know it, you're going to be passing that awesome new heirloom down to your grandkids.
2: That's super cool. So, can you can you tell me like what what the process would be? So, let's say I grow a really delicious tomato this year, and I slice into it, and it's just like perfect. What do I do yeah. to save those seeds?
3: Oh, it's it's super simple. You're gonna uh, so you find you grow your tomato, you fall in love with it. So, um, enjoy that tomato. The next one that you see that looks really 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 tasty, just let it get a little softer, a little overripe a little wrinkly and then you're going to cut it open and squeeze those seeds out you're going to put them into a cup of water and you're going to cover them with we'll say like a little piece of paper towel and you're going to let them ferment for a few days and get a little moldy Mm. and then you're going to rinse the uh the mold off the top rinse the water off and you're going to just dry the seeds on a paper towel and you're going to put them in somewhere cool dark and dry this is always the recipe for safely saving your seeds over the winter so that they're still fresh and viable the next year is to keep them somewhere cool dark and dry. So that could be your basement if you live somewhere with basements. I don't have a basement I live in Florida so mm. I keep them in a shoebox in my closet I got to mm. keep them in the coolest darkest um, place possible some people put them in their refrigerator and some even put them in their freezer. Um But what you got to do is keep those seeds cool, dark and dry if you want them to remain viable, viable meaning alive um, and able to germinate for the next season. So keep them cool, dark and dry. Save those seeds. Um, Yeah, the cool thing about tomatoes is that the flowers are pretty much self pollinating. And unless you have really wild bee activity and your bees are just like getting crazy going between 10 different varieties and crossing pollen like wild, you're pretty safe that you're going to get the same result. You're going to get the same kind of tomato that you really loved from this year. Mm. You're going to get the same one next year. Um, it's it's pretty rare that bees will um cross your tomatoes for you by accident. They're because those flowers are self-pollinating. So you um would just save those tomatoes year after year, always picking the fruit that you really, really love. Though you you want to actually select the fruits that you like the most and save the seeds off of those fruits specifically. It's also kind of a good idea to pull um, uh, fruits from a few different plants so that there's a good genetic variability.
2: Mm, Right, right. Well, that sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to try that this year. Do you have any suggestions for people who maybe are just getting into gardening? Like, Are there specific types of vegetables or flowers that you would suggest like, you know, are Almost always a success, because I know one of the hard things, if you're going to put in all this time and you're going to look at the catalog and you're going to order seeds and you're going to germinate them and then you're going to plant them. And then if they don't really live, that's kind of a bummer.
3: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Having a garden failure, it's tough. It's a two-way street because on one side, it's a huge bummer when something doesn't work out that you put a lot of love into. On the other side, you always learn from your failures. So yep. if anyone's failing out there, that's cool. I always learn everything from failing. Um, <laughs> but if we want to <laughs> avoid some major failures at the beginning, I always suggest to start things that like to be direct seeded. Um, starting things, starting seeds in your house and transplanting them out, that's um, a great method. But if you want to be really beginner and start Start super easy. I like things that can just go directly into the ground. Mm. Um, so waiting until after your last chance of frost has passed, and planting out some beans, some sunflowers, maybe some cucumbers, maybe some pumpkins. Those are super easy, um, and they're just they're easy to germinate. They're easy to grow um, zinnias, sunflowers, marigolds, calendulas, those are cosmos. Those are some of my favorite flowers. Um, and they're super, you know, super duper easy. And then, yeah, things like squash, beans, um, uh, cucumbers. Those are super duper easy. Tomatoes are pretty darn easy, but you do want to start them indoors and then transplant them out. Yeah. Last, um,
2: and and I would say, I mean, so we, we started gardening last year and learned a ton. I mean, one of the things that I feel like we learned was we set up a garden bed in a location in our yard that seemed like it was great. And early in the season, it was until the maple tree that was right above completely leafed out. And then oh. suddenly it got really dark. And so all of the stuff we'd planted there got really leggy and didn't really grow as well. So early in the season, the kale did great and then in the middle of the summer it was like super leggy and we also had lots of uh, we had a lot of pests too we had lots of uh, slugs in the garden so
3: um yes and slugs are common when you have a lot of shade and a lot of trapped moisture so that's why you were dry your garden soil wasn't drying out it was staying consistently moist you were stuck under that shady tree and the slugs were having a party. Yeah, that's what happens.
2: And then I have another um, pest question for you. So sure. on our tomato plants, which we planted in a different area that was plenty sunny and we had great tomatoes, there was one day where we noticed and discovered that we had a whole bunch of these giant, really awesome looking caterpillars that we had to take off because they were just decimating the tomato plants. We had hornworms.
3: But you had tomato hornworms. We
2: did. But my question is, where did they come from? <laughs>
3: They always show up. They they have a life cycle. So um, tomato hornworms they have a varying level of um, what do you call it destructibility? Okay. <laughs> the destructiveness. <laughs> they have a they 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 will take bites out of your tomatoes. They will munch on your foliage. I have in Rhode Island. Um, I typically allowed them to exist mostly. For selfish reasons, I like to watch um, them get parasitized. I'm a sicko. I like to watch my tomato hornworms get parasitized by wasps. And if you let your tomato hornworms hang out on your tomatoes long enough, within a few weeks of the tomato hornworms showing up, the natural population of um, wasps that parasitize the tomato hornworm, they'll start showing up. And so you'll notice your tomato hornworms will be covered in these little white cocoons along their back and you'll you'll be like looking at your tomato hornworm like what is going on with this little guy because he's got these little white um little cocoons stuck on his back and then um they start the the, it does kill the tomato hornworm so it's actually a natural balance that does occur so and and I think you do have kids and so it, it you should definitely bring the kids out to watch that one happen because it's fascinating. Oh, I got it.
2: I got to try that. I got to check that out this year. My son is obsessed with insects and so what we did last year is we picked all the hornworms off and then my daughter likes to eat insects so she wanted to eat some of them. Wow. So we fried some of them up, but then we kept some of them alive in a terrarium because I wanted to see if they I mean I I, I mean they turn into moths, right? Eventually like they will cocoon up and they turn into into something else right the caterpillars so we tried that but then unfortunately the terrarium got all wet and it didn't really work out they, how they died in did there.
3: they taste who ate them i need to know we got to back it up i have never heard of anyone eating a tomato hornworm um so how you so you
2: can i mean they, they taste like tomato leaves kind of because that's what they're eating and oh, they're like when, wow. and then when you cut them open they're like bright green inside also just like they're in the oh outside.
3: my goodness how did you prepare them
2: we just sauteed them in the oh like, my sauteed goodness in that's pan.
3: phenomenal um, I once ate a grub for five dollars, and that's the only time <laughs> I think I've ever eaten a bug, but I'm not against it at all. I think it's actually probably our hope for the future protein wise is probably eating bugs, so totally. um she's probably actually at the forefront of um a burgeoning industry but um
2: but i think that, that but i think yeah. that's that is a super cool point to make about the fact that like you know so one of the things i want to bring up is like yeah these things are pests right and it's really like it is disheartening when you come outside and you're like oh my god the slugs have just destroyed this plant right mm. but at the same time they also are part of the natural environment and i love the fact that you brought up this point that like yes I joke that where we live in Rhode Island is the tropics of New England because in the summer <laughs> it is so humid here like all the time. And yeah. so the fact is that like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And really I should – on the hill that gets a lot more sun where it dries out, that's where I should plant the things that are really susceptible to things like slugs. Um,
3: oh, and – and. um I mean, there are there are um, harmless ways to mitigate some of those problems. I mean, you could put some pans again. You're if if you're you said your daughter loves bugs, putting out some uh, shallow pans of beer. That's going to catch that'll trap your slugs. And then it's a fun way to check them out. Get them up close. Look,
2: yeah, yeah, we we did some of that. And then I was reading about eggshells. So we were going to sprinkle some eggshells around the plants because I guess the slugs don't like to go over the eggshells, which makes sense.
3: And diatomaceous earth will also do that. Um, and then for the tomato hornworms, they are a caterpillar. So I do believe BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, would work with them. Um, we might want to check that one after and uh make sure before we put that in the show but sure. i'm pretty sure bt does the trick for tomato hornworms
2: but i do love your point that like tomato hornworms i mean they're super cool so i mean i will say that like it was the it was a really fun day to have the kids search for these tomato hornworms and pull them off the tomato plants because the caterpillars themselves are harmless And they're enormous, and they look super cool, and you can pull them off the plant. They're gorgeous. And they also – it was like a fun project for the kids because they're really good at being camouflaged in the tomato plants. So it was like this thing where you've got to stand there and stare at the tomato plant for like an hour and be like, oh, there's another one. And you like pick them off. So it's a fun activity.
3: I'm looking forward to telling whenever I get – I get a lot of – horticulture questions um troubleshooting i'm looking forward to telling people that uh one method of one known method of tomato hornworm control is to eat them <laughs> i love that <laughs> i'm putting it on the list that's awesome
2: um so you know just to go back to the idea of like people wanting to be you know of, of having this success like do you have a, a I guess a a, a suggestion that you make like if someone says i'm a brand new gardener like how many varieties should somebody try and grow their first time like you know because i feel like it is so easy to look at the catalog and be like oh my god i want to grow that and that and that and that and then like suddenly you've ordered two dozen kinds of seeds
3: right it'll it'll definitely depend on how much space you have but Mm. i would say think about categorize what you like to eat and then maybe try to do like one or one to two max items so like two kinds of greens, like maybe do lettuce because lettuce is super easy and kale. So you got a cooking green and you got a fresh salad green. So you got two greens for a starter gardener. That's that's a lot, you know, and you'll be succession sowing them like sowing those seeds um, every few weeks to make sure that you keep your greens nice and fresh and productive. So maybe two types of greens and just one type of bean and maybe one zucchini and one cucumber and then put your you know put all your uh effort and juice into growing like one or two kinds of tomatoes you're going to start them inside it'll be a little more effort a bit of more of a learning curve but i'm telling you peppers i mean tomatoes are totally totally worth the effort so one or two tomatoes maybe a cooking tomato like a roma or san marzano and a slicing or cherry tomato for snacking and uh just eating on sandwiches so yeah a couple tomatoes yeah yeah. yeah, I so, love,
2: I love the cherry tomatoes because you can just go out and just like, I mean, every morning you can like, once they're really going in the summer, you can just like walk to your tomato plant and just like eat delicious cherry tomatoes right off the vine.
3: Yes. I actually, yeah, I, I would, I would say having a cherry tomato buffet is like, uh, I mean, talk about feeling rich. Like <laughs> I feel like a King when I go out to my garden and I'm just like casually, snarfing down cherry tomatoes it's like this is my kingdom i have got like <laughs> you know just growing my own food totally gourmet couldn't buy it in a grocery store if you wanted to I mean, right. you can't get that quality you can't pay for that quality well maybe at the farmer's market you can but
2: i think that's a a, but quality. i think that's a really important point that you bring up is that like you know even in the modern age of like we have incredible farmers markets pretty much in in, in a large portion of the United States and we have farmers doing incredible work growing really interesting things. I still think they are only really scratching the surface of what is being offered in a in a place like Baker Creek. Because
3: oh, absolutely. they're
2: growing these things also for it's a business, right? And so some of the varieties that you guys offer maybe aren't that easily grown in a business setting, or if they were, they might require a little too much touch. And so the prices are even, even at a farmer's market, the prices are going to be totally insane, but you can grow them in your own garden and then you can enjoy them.
3: Yeah, that's, I'm, that's another part that plays into my past is that I grew up in a little, you know, in a little Island and I, I didn't get to experience many other cultures and, I really wanted to know more about other countries and other places, other cuisines, other histories, and so that's the cool thing about heirlooms is that these are seeds that have been saved from many different cultures across the globe and so you're just taking a little piece of their the of their history of or of your own history, maybe if you're transplanted or if it's your own heirloom. but you're taking a piece of culinary and gardening history, you're growing it in your own garden and so I, I the the reason I love to do that is that I really like cooking different cuisines from different uh, places around the world, and you can really hone in your recipe when you're actually growing the correct um, type of vegetable that's used for that recipe. So when you are making mole and you use the right pepper for it, uh, that that really like nails it home, makes it a really authentic recipe. So when you want to bring like authenticity. And a deeper level of creativity, whether you're doing authentic cuisine or you're doing fusion, you're just doing something totally off the wall and creative, whatever you're doing, it just gets like that much deeper, more depth and more personality when you bring in an heirloom variety.
2: Totally. So I want to ask if in, if there's anything growing in your garden right now that is just like totally blew your mind that either yeah. flavor wise or color wise or how it grew or something like that.
3: Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. I've countless things. Um I've got I love to make Asian stir fry. Uh every week I have an Asian stir fry um with tofu and with just like a melody of of vegetables from Asia that I grow in my garden. And I have this pink celery right now. This mm. celery was bred in um Beijing. It grows really well over the winters here in Florida and it grows well in the spring. And Uh, in up north but my pink celery this year was like out of control and it's been lending this ridiculously nice flavor to uh, like my soups and my stir fries and so my pink celery was a huge win this year and then um, I love cauliflower and I really like when it's super sweet and it's just there's this phenomenal texture that you get when you grow your own cauliflower and you grow it over the coolest part of the season so that it gets nice and sweet on you. So I grew a phenomenal cauliflower this year. I grew gorgeous pink celery. Um, I grew a a type of Italian chicory called puntarelle, and it's actually not something that's in the catalog for Baker Creek at this time, but, um, I grew it and it it makes these like funky little pointed fingers. They kind of look like asparagus tips. And so it makes these funky heads of these twisted and gnarled looking asparagus tip like things. And it's this delicious, bitter chicory. And, uh, so I tried that raw in salads with some anchovy paste. I tried it roasted and I loved it in every preparation. I had it with white beans, like, um uh, in kind of like a Tuscan soup type deal. Um, so my puntarelli, my, I had a, a blast growing chicory, had a great time growing pink celery. Um, And I grew a lot of uh, blue butterfly pea, which is like my favorite herbal flowering plant on the whole planet. So
2: nice. It was a good one. Cool. So tell me about seed donations.
3: Right. So one thing that we do at Baker Creek that uh, is very close to my heart is we always make sure to donate free seeds to different gardening organizations, whether they be. Your local community garden or a uh, a food bank that passes out seeds for people to grow the the plants and then donate the food um school gardens educational programs um homeschool programs we try to donate as many seeds as, as we possibly can and get people gardening in that way um seed libraries and uh, that's been one nice uh, thing that we really like to do it's just get the community growing in a larger sense. And uh, that's one of the beautiful things about heirlooms is that they're designed for sharing I mean, because you get such an abundance of seeds when you save your own seeds. you ha- When you save your own tomato seeds in that one single tomato, you've got a whole bunch of seeds maybe more than you're going to need for your whole garden the next year. So right. if you save a few extra tomatoes, you're going to have enough tomato seeds to pass around to all your neighbors and friends and family. So getting people to save their own seeds or to, you know, reach out to Baker Creek for a donation and to get those seeds passed around the community to develop your own heirloom in your town or your area. That's what I really want to encourage people to do It's uh, just getting involved in that way. I grow at a community garden and we donate, um, a, a, a large portion of the produce to the local food bank. And that's been, uh, a, one way for us to stay connected to the community. COVID has us physically distanced, but we're able to safely drop off the produce. And then people who are experiencing, uh, <clears throat> food insecurity can come by and pick up fresh vegetables grown actually about 25 feet from the food bank.
2: Nice. That's amazing. And then, what about schools? Do you guys do any school programs?
3: Yeah, yeah, we do. We donate to um, school gardens and, and any kind of school gardening program. Really, just send us an email at seeds at rare dot attention donations, and just let us know um, what your program is, and we'll send you we'll send you free seeds. Yeah, we've um, lots of school garden programs. Uh, we'll order our seeds and we are able to get them growing some really beautiful heirlooms, some colorful stuff. A lot of the colorful, flavorful, interesting varieties that we offer are specifically geared towards kids. Like kids love the stuff, so it's really well suited. These are great choices for community gardens and for kids. Uh, these are great choices for school gardens.
2: Awesome. I love it. And I see on your site that you guys also sell raised bed kits. So if people we do. are somewhere that the actual ground might not be so good, they can put in a raised bed, uh, and then yes. bring in some, bring in some good soil.
3: Yeah. Uh, that's always my, uh, go to advice is if you have contaminated soil, polluted soil, which is a reality for a lot of us, I, my community garden, we cannot absolutely cannot grow in the soil at our community garden as it used to be a parking lot. So all of our beds are raised.
2: Nice. Awesome. Well, Shani, it's been really amazing to chat with you about seeds and I can't wait to get my garden started here since we just had our last freeze.
3: Yeah, that's exciting. Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Get over to rareseeds.com ASAP to get your garden started. You can follow them on social media at Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, and you can follow Shani and her garden in Florida at Plant Sages. This was a great interview and I hope you'll share it far and wide. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, Harry at Kitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast.